Welcome to CentCast, the official podcast of the United States Central Command, America's premier warfighting headquarters. Coming to you from Tampa Bay, Florida, with your host, Joe Buccino. Hey folks, Joe Buccino here. I've got a special guest today joining the CentCast studio in Tampa virtually. For this episode, we spoke with John Gazvinian. He is an Iranian-American author, historian, a former journalist. John is a noted authority on the history of U.S.-Iran relations, and he's best known for his book, America and Iran, A History, 1720 to the Present. It was named by the New York Times as 100 Notable Books of 2021. John was born in Iran, but he left with his family at the age of one, and he was raised in London and Los Angeles. He received his undergraduate degree from Brown University. He's got a master's and doctorate in history from Oxford University. John taught Middle Eastern history at colleges and universities throughout the country. As a journalist, he's written for Newsweek, The Nation, The Washington Post, The Sunday Times, Politico. He is now the executive director of the Middle East Center at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. And it's from there, his office there, that he called us into the studio here in Tampa. I wanted to have him on to talk about a really interesting period in CENTCOM history. That's the period that begins with the end of the Iran-Iraq War in 1988. It begins really in earnest the next year, 1989, towards the end of the Cold War. This is a time in which there was a real opportunity to mend U.S.-Iranian relations. It's a bit of history that very few people really know about. John knows about it. Before I go to the interview, there's just two pieces of history that we just need to set the table on because they're introduced in the discussion without context. One of them is this. During the Iran-Iraq War, Hezbollah, a group allied with Iran, captured American citizens hostage. They were held hostage in Lebanon. Okay, so you need to know that going in. You don't need to know too much more about that. The second one is that Ayatollah Khomeini died in June 1989. He was replaced by Ali Khamenei, who had been the president of Iran. The two names are very similar. Khamenei replaces Khomeini. Here is my discussion with John Gazvinian. John, set the table for us. This is the period at the end of the Iran-Iraq War. This is the end of the Cold War, or, or coming to the end of the Cold War. The United States can see the end of the Cold War. What is Iran's thinking about U.S.-Iran relations? Yeah, this is a, a really momentous period of change, actually, for both countries for very different reasons. You know, talking about the period at the very end of the 1980s, going into the 1990s. Uh, in Iran, the Ayatollah Khomeini, uh, who was the great revolutionary leader of the Iranian revolution in 1979, has passed away at the beginning of July of 1989. It's a moment of transition for this relatively young revolutionary republic uh, that has to you know, put together a new constitution, figure out a new supreme leader. And the new supreme leader of, uh, of Iran is Ayatollah Khamenei, who is seen as more pragmatic, more of a kind of political operator than the Ayatollah Khomeini had been. He becomes supreme leader and the leader of the Iranian parliament, Ali Akbar Hashemi Rafsanjani, he's elected president in 1989. Uh, Rafsanjani has a long history of being seen as a pragmatist, but also someone very much enamored with the idea of improving relations with the United States. These are all people of the revolutionary generation who came to power in the, 19 the end of the 1970s in the revolution against the Shah's regime, a very anti-American atmosphere. But Rafsanjani is one of these people who was neck deep in secret arms deals with the United States during the Iran-Contra affair of the mid-1980s. And he saw that he really believed in the idea that Iran and the U.S. did not need to be permanently enemies. Meanwhile, in the U.S., you have the, you know, well, not just in the U.S., but internationally, you also have the end of the Cold War. And you have a new president in the U.S., George H.W. Bush. 
and a very different kind of landscape. Of course, in 1991, the Gulf War uh, and this period of kind of that Bush cast as the New World Order, fundamental realignment of U.S. relationships throughout the world, including in the Middle East, where the U.S. seems to suddenly have all these new Arab state allies against Saddam Hussein and has seemingly unlimited maneuvering room in the region and internationally. It's the sole standing superpower. So lots of things shifting at this point in time. You write about in your book, the Goodwill Hunting chapter of, of your book, this is chapter 21, you describe that an Iran that's exhausted in many ways by the Iran-Iraq war and maybe the people underneath the regime, the people are maybe looking for a way out or looking for some way to soften relations with the West. Definitely, I think, a kind of inflection point in Iran. You know, it's been eight, nine, well, actually 10 years, really, since the revolution. Hundreds of thousands of people have died in the Iran-Iraq war. Iran is deeply isolated. Its economy is in tatters. The revolution, of course, like all revolutions, brought up, brought, you, know, you know, involved a certain amount of emotion and kind of, you know, radical fervor. But a lot of that you know, normally would die, you'd expect that to die out after a few years uh, in general. But in Iran, remember, the revolution was followed almost immediately in 1980 by this vicious war with Iraq uh, that cost many, many lives. But one of the things it did do was to help to really cement the revolution and kind of whip people up into a nationalistic kind of patriotic, you know, kind of uh, state of mind, which again is normal when your country has been invaded by one of its neighbors. So it really provided the glue in many ways for Iranians throughout the 1980s, who might otherwise have become more sort of skeptical about the revolution. But by the end of the 80s, the war is over, Khomeini has died, there is a new, more pragmatic leadership in place. People are a little bit exhausted with war and sacrifice and hardship. And I think there's a certain amount of openness that Iran has to mending its relations with the West and with the United States. I think that's probably very surprising to hear now in some ways. It's, it's almost hard to believe. But at the time, we were just a decade removed from very positive strategic relations with Iran. And perhaps on both sides, they're remembering that and remembering we can maybe snap back into that. Is there, is there, some, is there some of that? I wouldn't go that far. I don't think that the leaders of the Islamic Republic were looking for a close strategic alliance with the United States, similar to the, what the Shah's regime had had. I mean, in many ways, that was one of the things that the revolution fought against. Uh, the revolution was about a lot of things. Uh, it was about religion. It was about political resistance to the Shah's regime and autocracy. Uh, it was about, for some people, some leaders of the revolution, it was about uplifting the poor and the oppressed of the world. But also, for a lot of revolutionary leaders, it had been about creating genuine foreign policy independence for Iran. And the Shah's excessive reliance or closeness, shall we say, to the United States was a real source of uh, frustration and resentment and, and and helped to fuel the revolution. So a lot of the rhetoric of the Islamic Republic from the very beginning, you know, had been that we are not going to be pushed around by superpowers, whether it's the Soviet Union or the United States. And of course, Iran and the US broke off ties in 1980. So they were not looking, I don't think anyone was looking for that level of close, you know, locked, joined at the hip kind of alliance with the US. But there was a feeling that it didn't make among some quarters, particularly the Rafsanjani camp, that Iran was not well served by the state of permanent hostility and enmity with the United States. And that was that rhetoric, by the way, was echoed by the Reagan administration. Mm. Ronald Reagan, we now forget famously, when the Iran-Contra scandal blew out into the open in November of 1986, got on national television and said, you know, the Iranian revolution, among other things, the Iranian revolution is a fact of history. But between Iranian and American basic national interests, there need be no permanent conflict. 
which is actually a much more conciliatory way of speaking about Iran than probably almost almost any president since, uh, with the possible exception of Obama, has been able to muster. So this was a, you know, there was a searching, I think, searching in both countries of, look, it's been 10 years, maybe we need to lay a, set aside our differences, look for at least a pragmatic modus operandi or a way of cooperating with each other. It's not, not something short of a full-scale friendship, though. And then, and then behind Reagan, George H.W. Bush and his inauguration, January 1989, part of his inauguration address, he says, goodwill begets goodwill, and he's referring to Iran. In crucial things, unity. And this, my friends, is crucial. To the world, too, we offer new engagement and a renewed vow. We will stay strong to protect the peace. The offered hand is a reluctant fist, once made strong and can be used with great effect. There are today Americans who are held against their will in foreign lands, and Americans who are unaccounted for. Assistance can be shown here and will be long remembered. Goodwill begets goodwill. Good faith can be a spiral that endlessly moves on. Great nations like great men must keep their word. When America says something, America means it, whether a treaty or an agreement or a vow made on marble steps. Yes, this was an, actually an extraordinary moment. I mean, in his inaugural address in January of 1989, George H.W. Bush, he, he makes an oblique reference that's very clearly intended to be a reference to the American hostages who were being held in Lebanon by radical Shiite militias, including Hezbollah and Islamic Jihad, which are loosely or somewhat strongly tied to, the, to Iran, to the Islamic Republic in one way or another. They don't take their orders from Iran, uh, but I think that they, you know, they're heavily influenced by Iran. And and Bush makes this comment. He says, you know, Americans, are, citizens are still being held in overseas. It's very clearly meant to say, listen, if Iran can can help us out to try to get hostages released from Lebanon, uh, we can start a process of bringing Iran out of the cold and potentially improving relations between Iran and the U.S. Rafsanjani, who has just become president, for him, this is exactly what he wants to hear, because he's always, he's been one of the moderates who's been advocating better relations with the U.S. How does Rafsanjani signal his purview to the administration, to the Bush administration? Yeah, at first he is skeptical, as everyone in Iran is. I mean, he wants to make sure that Iran doesn't, you know, kind of get screwed in the bargain. So he wants some reassurance. The Bush administration very smartly agrees to the UN sending a special envoy to Iran, uh, Gian Domenico Pico, who goes and spends a lot of time with Rafsanjani and the Iranian authorities basically trying to convince them that the US is for real. That, hey, listen, you get help to get these hostages released, you'll see some act of goodwill from the US as well. And Rafsanjani says, look, there are two things Iran wants. One is it wants some of these sanctions lifted, which, by the way, are much, much, much milder than any of the sanctions that Iran has been faced with in recent years, I mean, by comparison, but at the time seemed like a lot. Sanctions, Iran had paid for uh, Iran U.S. weapons before the revolution, but had never received them and wanted to be compensated in some way for that as well. And said, listen, we also want the U.S. support for a U.N. resolution that makes it clear that Saddam Hussein was to blame for the Iran-Iraq war, which he objectively was. I mean, there was no question about that, but uh, the U.S., because of its enmity for Iran, did not want to support the idea of a you know, a kind of moral victory for Iran in that way, right? Mm. So that's what the Iranians were asking for. Uh, Pico said, look, I think, you know, we'll see. Let's, you know, but I do think that the U.S. is sincere in this. Rafsanjani felt that that was enough. 
And so he began trying to convince the, the new supreme leader, Ayatollah Khamenei, and some of the more hardline elements in the Islamic Republic, that, hey, we should give the U.S. a chance. Like, let's see if they're good for their work. It took a while. It took months for him to convince the some of those hardline security apparatus, especially. Once he had done that, the really difficult challenge was then going to Lebanon and convincing some of the radical Shiite militias that they should release hostages. For them, it was sort of like, well, what's in it for us? Um, I mean, this is our leverage. We're holding Americans hostage. As soon as we re-release these people, then we have nothing. And then they're just going to you know, obliterate us. So there was a lot of back and forth. And apparently there were these stories about how the Iranians went to uh, Beirut. The militias were firing grenades into their rooms and telling them, to go, telling them to go back to Iran and so on. But eventually they were able to prevail. And the after about two or three years, the American hostages were released. They came home to kind of heroes' welcomes in the U.S. And there was this big moment of celebration. And then Iran kind of waited to see what America's gesture of goodwill was going to be. What year uh, is this was, now? This is December of 1991. Okay, and so Iran is waiting for the Bush administration to reciprocate, to respond, maybe an olive branch, and what happens? They don't get one. Uh, basically, w yeah. what's happened is that the world has changed in the two and a half years since, or the almost three years since Bush made his goodwill begets goodwill address. At the time, in January of 1989, sure, the Soviet Union was crumbling, Eastern Europe was crumbling, so communism was crumbling, but it was still... TBD, right? It wasn't quite clear how things were going to shake out. By the end of 1991, everything's dramatically changed. The Soviet Union is in shambles. The U.S. has just won this absolutely devastating victory over Saddam Hussein in Iraq, which it has done with the help of countries that had not typically been very friendly to the U.S. in the region, such as Syria. So uh, the U.S. rightly feels that for the first time since the Cold War, since the end of the Second World War, really, it is the undisputed superpower in the Middle East, and in fact, all over the world. It no longer really needs Iran. The other thing that started to happen is, there, you know, as part of the price that the Bush administration has, has been seeking from Israel for helping to make sure that Saddam Hussein doesn't fire, you know, kind of intercepting his Scud missiles uh, towards Israel and so on, is he says, look, we really helped to eliminate one of, the, one of your biggest enemies. Saddam Hussein was a leader that uh, Israel was very concerned about throughout the 1980s. And what we need in exchange, and, and we've rallied the entire Arab world against one of their own, which is, has never happened before, in a kind of pro-Western kind of block. Mm -hmm. What we need from you is a serious peace process, uh, not just with the Palestinians, but with the entire Arab world. So, a lot, so, begins, so begins the Madrid peace process, which eventually leads to the Oslo peace process of the 1990s, right? Mm -hmm. So the Israelis go along with this. So now you have this extraordinary new realignment in the Middle East, where, all, where the vast majority of the Arab states and Israel and the US, and even to some extent the Soviet Union, are all on the same page, and of course all of Western Europe, trying to bring about this new peace process. Saddam Hussein is weakened. There's an almost limitless room for maneuver in the region. And there's this feeling of like, who the hell cares about Iran? So we made them a sort of vague promise three years ago. It was different. Back then, we liked, sort of liked the idea of this kind of religious republic on the border of the Soviet Union because, of course, you know, they were not friendly to the Soviets either. But Iran has nothing of real strategy to offer us at this point. So you can see everything kind of comes together where Iran becomes a sort of glue for Israel, the Arab states and the U.S. for the first time all on one page. And Iran is an easy kind of enemy to sort of kick around because it's weak, it's down. And that's sort of why they don't bother really reciprocating. Let's project this out 25 years what do you think the Middle East, U.S.-Iranian relations would look like? Obviously, it's, it's a crazy hypothetical. It's obviously an unknown. But what do you think this would look like today, geopolitically, had we 
engaged more firmly with Iran and, and brought Iran into this process, brought Iran into the peace process. What do you think this would look like today? You know, Rafsanjani was a new president at the time. It was the first two or three years of his term. And Iranian presidents, like those in the U.S., are term-limited to two four-year terms. He was re-elected in 93. He served until 97. But for the remainder of his one-and-a-half terms that he had after this episode, he was completely discredited in foreign policy circles in Iran when it came to the idea of outreach to the U.S. There was the feeling that, look, you tried, you mm-hmm. failed, you got screwed. You know, so he focused more on domestic affairs and kind of opening Iran up to international business and to Western Europe to some extent, and just other kinds of priorities, building up the education system, the healthcare system, the welfare system. He never really tried again. It wasn't until 1997 when you had a much more liberal reformist president who came to power, Mohammad Khatami, during the second term of the Clinton administration, mm-hmm. that there was a serious moment where there was some potential for detente, for rapprochement. And that didn't quite work out either, both because Khatami was undermined by some of his hardline opponents in the U.S. And, of course, Clinton was weakened towards the end of his term by the Monica Lewinsky scandal and his impeachment. And, you know, of course, was facing a lot of domestic opposition to the idea of improved relations with Iran as well, although he tried in his own way as well, but faced a lot of opposition from Israel and other regional allies. The reason, though, I think this episode from the beginning of the 90s, 1990s is so important is that when Barack Obama comes to power in 2009, most Americans have forgotten this by this point, because it's been almost 20 years by this point. Mm -hmm. But when he has this kind of moment where he comes to power and he has this inaugural address. So in this season of New Beginnings, I would like to speak clearly to Iran's leaders. We have serious differences that have grown over time. My administration is now committed to diplomacy that addresses the full range of issues before us and to pursuing constructive ties among the United States, Iran, and the international community. This process will not be advanced by threats. We seek instead engagement that is honest and grounded in mutual respect. You too have a choice. The United States wants the Islamic Republic of Iran to take its rightful place in the community of nations. You have that right, but it comes with real responsibilities. And that place cannot be reached through terror or arms, but rather through peaceful actions that demonstrate the true greatness of the Iranian people and civilization. And the measure of that greatness is not the capacity to destroy. It is your demonstrated ability to build and create. The reaction in Iran is very interesting. Khamenei is still supreme leader 20 years later almost. And he says, you know, we're not, you know, basically fool fool us once, shame on us, fool us twice, shame on you. I mean, his rhetoric is, look, let's see. Let's, we're not fooled by nice words. Let's see what about action. And I would argue from everything I've understood about Iranian thinking at the time was, you know, we've been down this road before. Rhetoric is not enough. Let's see what the U.S. actually wants to do. And so there's a certain amount of skepticism. It does take a while for Iran to negotiate this nuclear deal with the U.S. in part because Iran is very much interested in crossing T's and dotting I's and making sure that it's, you know, it's covering its back uh, because it doesn't want a repeat of the 1990 uh, episode. John, what are we to take away from all this? How should we be thinking about this now? Yeah, I think, so in addition to what I've just outlined, I mean, you have to remember that, you know, despite all of this, Iran kind of went along with the nuclear negotiations with Obama and the nuclear deal, of course, was signed in 2015. And then President Trump withdrew from it again in 2018, which I think at that point really was the final nail in the coffin of any Iranian ability to trust the United States. Of course, the United States also has many, many reasons why it doesn't trust Iran. And, you know, we're now more than 40 years beyond the revolution. We just marked the 44th anniversary of the revolution this month. At this point, 
mistrust is so entrenched. But I think these episodes are key inflection points, right? What happened in 1989, 1991? What happened again in 2018 when Trump withdrew from the nuclear deal? You know, Iran already, as a revolutionary anti-American republic, was not really geared up to trust the U.S. And I think these episodes kind of solidified that. So Iran, you have to understand, has a pretty divided political system as well, like the U.S. The kind of conversation we've been talking about, as well as the JCPOA negotiations in the in the early 2000s, both took place under administrations that were relatively pragmatic or reformist or moderate in some way. There, there is a much more hardline element in Iran. And that's the element that won the presidential election in 2021. There was a feeling that, you know, that, listen, you guys tried to negotiate this nuclear deal. Once again, it didn't work. Once again, what we, we, we being hardliners have been telling you for years is that you simply can't trust the U.S. So, you, you know, at the elections, you know, you had a much more hardline uh, president come to power, Ibrahim Raisi. And of course, we haven't been able to get very far with the nuclear negotiations uh, since the Biden administration came to power. Now, is that all because of these you know, American betrayals? No, not of, of course not. I mean, Iran has plenty to answer for itself. And of course, it had moments of opportunity that, that it has also ignored or frittered away in one form or another. And it has also proved itself untrustworthy to the United States on multiple occasions. But I think looking at the close micro history of this is where we start to see these moments where both countries, they take lessons. Mm. And I do think that the 1989, 1991, you know, that's that was a big lesson for the Rafsanjani Khamenei generation, this new pragmatic post Khomeini generation that is still in many ways in power in Iran. Uh, and I think that's what we take away from all of this. Maybe the last question here is, is I know that uh, you do not look at history or this history or any any evaluation or understanding of history from the perspective of blame. I've heard you say that. But how do you evaluate the Bush administration's decision-making at this really critical moment? Very clearly a missed opportunity. And in fact, many of the officials involved at the time said it was a missed opportunity. Brent Scowcroft said, you know, maybe we we didn't take them as seriously as we should have. I mean, maybe John Domenico Pico was right, because Pico said in his memoirs that, you know, the U.S. put me inadvertently in the position of lying to Iran for four years. You know, he was angry about it. People like James Baker and, and Brent Scowcroft, some of the more realist members of Bush's foreign policy team, I think have looked back and admitted that, hey, you know, maybe we should have taken more seriously Iran's olive branch. At the same time, though, I think, you know, it's important to understand the, the broader international context. I mean, I don't fully, I don't think you can blame the U.S. for feeling like, you know, 1989 is not the same as 1992. We're in a different place. We're more powerful. The world has changed. Cold War is over. There's a new world order. What do we really have to gain from a better relationship with Iran? It probably causes us more political headaches than it actually um, adds, really, when we have the entire region, the entire Arab world, the Israelis, the Europeans, the Soviets, all sitting around a table in Madrid talking about Middle East peace as if it's another Versailles. You can understand a certain level of imperial hubris there, but I think it's also easy with the hindsight, with the benefit of hindsight now as we are, I think, objectively, it's fair to say, a somewhat declining imperial power, to be able to look back and say, you know, there are these moments where maybe we should have not been too quick to dismiss opportunities like that. John, this is all fascinating, and you have such great wisdom on on this issue and, and all issues related to Iran and our history with Iran. And I want to thank you for providing your insight and for coming on the show. Thank you. It's my pleasure.